Let us uh, turn now, friends, to the second portion we read in Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> and uh, with the help of God's Holy Spirit, we will um, explore a little of this um, amazing story in uh, the first part of Isaiah 6. Now, the prophet um, helpfully dates this experience by linking it to an historical event. In the year King Uzziah died. Now, this king lived approximately 800 years before the Lord Jesus came to this earth. And basically, he was a good man. He was a good king, and he ruled for a total of 53 years. And all that time, uh, Isaiah was under his rule. In, in fact, Isaiah was born during the reign of this king. And God blessed him, and the people under him prospered greatly. They prospered um, spiritually. They prospered politically. Sadly, like so many others throughout history, in biblical times and since then, reputation, fame, and eminence fueled this man's pride. So God judged Uzziah with leprosy, which was then, of course, an incurable disease. And the king was banished to live in a colony for the rest of his life. And as far as we can tell, um, he died in that colony. We have no record that he was ever released from the colony, nor for that matter, that he ever repented of his sins. We'd like to think that he did, because there would have been many people like Isaiah praying for his repentance. But in any case, Isaiah was heartbroken at what happened to the king, uh, his backsliding and his uh, leprosy and eventual death. And they were great friends. Uh, Isaiah had high regard for this king. Now, that's the background to this glorious vision in chapter 6. Now, of course, the death of any backslider is a tragedy. And it's a greater tragedy if we have no assurance that a backslider has repented and been restored by God. And partly what makes it all a tragedy is that death seals the destiny of every human being, for will or for woe, and no one is exempt, not even kings. Now, although we're unsure if Uzziah repented, we are not unsure of this, that the prophet Isaiah prayed and prayed and prayed again for his repentance. 
because that's what believers do, is it not? For erring brothers and sisters. We pray for them, and we pray again for them, and we'll continue praying until we get some indication that they are back in the fold. Now, Uzziah reminds us of how much our leaders need our prayers. And he also reminds us of how we should challenge them, which I'm quite sure that Isaiah challenged Uzziah time and time again. And we should challenge our leaders if they are defying God. And we all know how much they are guilty of that particular sin in our day and generation. Now, our voice may be weak and inconsequential, but nevertheless, if you're praying for anybody, whether it's the leaders of a land or whether it's the state of the church, whatever it is, if you're praying for anybody, don't you for a minute think that you are getting nowhere with your prayers. Your prayers are being heard in heaven and being registered in the presence of God. And that's what matters as far as your prayers and mine are concerned. Well, that brings us to this amazing scene depicted in verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. This was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, but he had a God who was infinitely greater than himself. So let's look at this. Let's look first of all at how he handled this crisis. He was, as I mentioned, deeply troubled at at Uzziah's backsliding. Now, I read that uh, previous chapter or part of that previous chapter, chapter 5, because God wrote through Isaiah, of course, how he saw his children, the children of Israel, and he compared them, as we read, to a vineyard. And we read in chapter 5, verse 1, I will sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. That's a favorite image in the Old Testament regarding God's people. We were singing about it a moment ago in Psalm 80. Then Isaiah alludes to God's favor on his people. He fenced it. He planted choice vines. He built a tower in the midst of it. It's all picturesque language demonstrating to us the rich divine blessings that were bestowed upon these people. But something went wrong. Something went wrong. Verse 2 of chapter 5 again. God looked, that is, he looked down upon his vine. He looked that it should bring forth grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. So God asked a question. What more could have been done? to my vineyard or for my vineyard, than what I have done. What more could I have done to keep you faithful to myself? He provided rich blessings upon them. 
They prospered religiously, morally, and even politically, far more than any other nation. But now, all God can find in the vineyard is wild grapes. Wild grapes. You see, my friends, they lost their moral compass. They lost their moral compass. Verse 7, he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Now that and much more left the prophet cast down. So he did what every believer should do in a crisis. It's what you should do and what I ought to do as well. He took it to the Lord. That must be your first recourse. And this applies, I think, whether you're a Christian or not. When you're in a crisis, bring it first and foremost to the Lord. And Isaiah did this by seeking God where God has promised to be, where God has promised to meet with those that love him. We read in Exodus chapter 25, Moses being told by God and thereby the children of Israel, I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. From above the mercy seat. So Isaiah came to God's house where that mercy seat was located, where every believer should expect that they're going to meet with God. Didn't Jesus promise us whether well, two or three are gathered together in my name? There am I. In this instance, I say I wasn't disappointed. Whether you are going to be disappointed at the end of this service or not, only God knows. But what I would like to know is, is this part of the reason you came here tonight? Not to listen to Ian Smith or whoever else would be in this pulpit, but did you come to meet with God? Did you come seeking his mercy seat? Entering the temple at Jerusalem, Isaiah records for us this amazing scene. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Now, there's something here I have to explain, lest we fall into creating a contradiction to something that God said to Moses. In Exodus 33, he said this to him, no man can see me and live. So infinitely glorious is our holy God that sinful flesh cannot look upon him and continue to live on this earth. Here's Isaiah say, I saw the Lord. High and lifted up. You see, it's within God's power. And please don't misunderstand me here. 
It's within God's power to modify his own appearance from a human earthly perspective without actually changing himself in any way whatsoever. Can I say that again? It is within God's power to modify his appearance from a human perspective without actually changing himself in any way whatsoever. And that, by the way, is the explanation for God appearing in the burning bush and for the Holy Spirit appearing as a, as a dove at the baptism of Jesus Christ. And for that matter, that's the explanation for the Son of God appearing on the scene of time and history in the form of a man. Now, remember, um, sticking or remaining with this image, the image itself is deliberate. It is presenting God in this glorious, regal way, full of majesty. And I think the contrast here is being made between the dead Uzziah and the glorious living God. I think that's what Isaiah was meant to understand from this. God is constantly exalted above every created thing and creature. Now, add to this scene, this aura of sheer holiness. His train filled the temple. This is a picture of a, of a bride with that veil flowing out behind her. His train filled the temple. The, the, the chambers of this temple, they always had an aura of holiness about them, at least in Israel's better days. And particularly, the inner chamber of the temple, what was known as the Holy of Holies. The Israelite people trembled at the thought of what was in that Holy of Holies. They trembled. They even trembled when once a year the high priest went in there. They used to ponder over what was happening when that man went in through that curtain into that inner special chamber, especially when that Shekinah glory cloud came down upon it. Now, I think that's very significant to this story, because that Shekinah glory cloud, it symbolized two things. It symbolized the presence of Almighty God, and it symbolized the holiness, the sheer awesome holiness of Almighty God. So Isaiah sees the cloud like this holy bridal veil filling every corner of the temple. His train filled the temple. So the prophet was left in no doubt 
God was in this place. Uzziah's throne lay empty. The earthly king of Israel lay dead. But here was a throne that's never empty. Here was a king that lives forever. We were singing about this a moment ago in Psalm 45. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So this is a throne, my friends, that's high, lifted up above the corruptions of men. Try and remember that in this profane age in which we live. I say that, my friends, because like Isaiah, we are living through a crisis. A crisis that I cannot begin to measure. A crisis in our nation. A crisis in our world. A crisis in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what our first step ought to be in addressing this crisis, and addressing every crisis for that matter. My friends, Let's take it to the Lord. And let's take it to the Lord in urgent prayer. Let's seek his presence, especially where he has promised to be. Yes, I know you can meet with God anywhere at any time. But he hasn't promised to meet with you in your kitchen. He hasn't promised to meet with you driving your car. But he has promised to meet with you in here. He has promised to meet with you in the place set aside for his worship where his people gather even in twos and threes. And when we do come to God with that mindset, with that attitude, we should have a commensurate spirit of expectation that we are going to meet with a holy God, and that we should expect a holy aura in the gathering of the saints. When you came through that door this evening, my friends, you didn't come to some social appointment. You came into the presence of Almighty God, whose holiness and righteousness and justice demands what? The condemnation of every sinner on the face of this earth, including us. And if we are allowed to stand one second in the presence of this holy God, it is only due to his mercy, to his pity, to his love, and especially to his beloved son and what he achieved on our behalf on Calvary. I have to move on to look secondly at the effect of all of this on Isaiah. Verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Now to enhance this scene further, 
God added these seraphim. These were um, a, a particular type of winged angel. There are different types of angels, angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim, and so on. Now, as you know, angels had a high prominence in, in the Old Testament scriptures, and there's a telling picture of the significance, especially of the cherubim. And I think I may have mentioned this to you before in a, in a sermon. I'm thinking here of the two cherubim that grew up out of the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant of God. And the, the significance and the symbolism of that is so profound because as they were designed, according to God's design, of course, they rose up above the mercy seat, then their heads were turned in and down so that they were peering down on top of the mercy seat. What were they looking at? Well, they're looking at two things. They were looking at the Ten Commandments in that box that condemned every sinful creature. But they were also looking at the blood which the high priest sprinkled on top of the mercy seat. And they were peering at this because they couldn't understand it. They couldn't understand. This is what Peter meant when he spoke about what the angels couldn't understand. Things the angels desired to look into it, they were peering and peering and peering, but the blood wasn't for them. Meanwhile, here we read, each one of these seraphim had six wings. And they're shown with their faces and their feet covered with the wings, so that even sinless, holy angels are humbled before God. And they're also shown to Isaiah and to ourselves in this picture as being in constant motion, as if they were flying around the throne of God. You know how we have the image in heaven with those who are surrounding the throne of God. Well, these seraphim, they are constantly in motion, going round and round the throne and singing as they went. And you'll notice the song they were singing had only one main theme. Holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's something else that we should notice here as well. The name of God changes. Now, this will be brought out in some of the versions of the Bible that you're using here tonight, but perhaps in some it doesn't. The word Lord in verse 1 is capital L-O-R-D. Now, that's a common title in the scriptures, both for God and for certain individuals. It's a term of respect and term of reverence. But when you come down to verse 3, those of you who have uh, versions of the Bible that recognize this, the word Lord is in capital letters. Each letter, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, that name 
unlike the first one, is an exclusive title to God. That glorious title, I am. The title that conveys to people like yourselves that our God is a God of majesty, a God of sovereignty, a God of sheer gravitas. Who is like unto thee amongst the gods? So when the name and the presence of God come together, look at the result. It made even holy angels tremble. And that's precisely the effect, as we shall see, that the vision had on Isaiah. But meanwhile, here the angels sang, verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I'm not very sure if, have you ever paused to ask yourself, what does that mean? The whole earth is full of his glory. We like to think that that's true today, over 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ completed his wonderful work and he sent the church out to all the nations of the earth. This was 800 years before Christ came to earth. So how could the whole earth be full of his glory at this stage when Israel was grossly backslidden and the rest of the entire world lay in heathen darkness? We know when the Lord Jesus would come, and this very prophet prophesied this, that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But that's 800 years in the future. And furthermore, this very prophet knew that he was living in very dark days. So this claim by the seraphim tells us something important about the glory of God on this earth. You see, that glory is not limited to the blessed state of God's people. And nor is it limited, for that matter, to spiritual realities. We were singing the answer to this question earlier on in Psalm 19. The entire cosmos reveals the glory of God. The glory of God was there before Adam was even created. Providence reveals the glory of God. Divine judgments reveal the glory of God. The whole earth, the angel sang, is full of his glory. So as this angelic praise rang in the prophet's ears, more astonishing scenes developed. Verse 4, the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. This must have been a frightening experience for the prophet. It was certainly too much for him. Now remember, this is the greatest prophet in Israel. He was faithful to God. He was given insights into Messiah's story that only David could match. Yet, at the sight of this vision of divine majesty and holiness, he crumbled. He crumbled. Notice these steps. First of all, he cries, verse 5, Woe is me, 
for I am undone. Whenever you see that word woe in the Bible, remember it's the opposite of blessing. It's the opposite of blessing. Woe is me. And then he says, for I am undone. He feels himself as if the Lord had cursed him. He feels as if everything is falling apart. Actually, the word undone means I feel destroyed. I feel destroyed. And against the light of God's holiness, the prophet's best efforts at being holy and moral and ethical and religious, they all seem defiled. They all seem unclean. Even his very words, words that are so important to any prophet, so significant to any prophet, they suffer a similar fate. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What exposed this degree of defilement? What showed this prophet just how corrupt his nature was? The same thing that must reveal it to you and to me. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Nothing else, my friends, will reveal to you the degree of sin and corruption in your heart except the Lord himself. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, I think this is very challenging to all of us, my friends. We don't see visions of this nature today. But we should be aware of the holiness of the God whom we worship. Now, that's something, and it's important to remember this, if you're not a born-again Christian in here tonight, you will never see the holiness of God. Never. Because you can only see the holiness of God through faith. Through faith. Now, what's important in this context is the question it raises for yourself. Let's assume that most of you here this evening are Christians. That most of you in here, to some degree or other, could say, Mine eyes have seen the king. What effect has that had upon you? What result has that brought out in your life? Has it resulted in godly fear? A sense of awe? True reverence? Humility? Has it regulated what your eyes see? Does it dictate where your feet take you in life? Does it stir within you songs of praise for your holy and almighty God? I better move on. The time is going. Want to notice God's answer to Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having a live coal in his hand. 
saw. Now Isaiah was obviously experiencing an acute sense of sin, of guilt, and of moral defilement. That's pretty obvious, I think. Now, under that deep conviction, God did what only God can do. He stepped in, showing pity and mercy and love. Just as he did 2,000 years ago, when he stepped into the undoneness and woes of humanity by delivering his son to all that suffering, pain, and death to become a savior to the lost. So the command came from heaven for the seraphim to play this role of deliverer for the prophet, to rescue him from his despair. And what a graphic picture we have. As the angel, uh, here in the command from heaven, and we have to assume that everything these angels or seraphim did, they did it in response to what God was impressing upon them. So one of the angels pauses from this flying and singing around the throne, and he bends down and he picks up the tongues from off the altar. And with the tongues, he catches a burning coal of fire. It would have been smoldering, I suppose. And then, what a scene this must have been. And then he flew over to where the prophet was standing with the tongues and the burning coal in his hand, and he lifted the burning coal up to the lips of the prophet. What happened then? The burning coal devoured the defilement of the prophet. The burning coal devoured the defilement of the prophet. That's what's meant in Malachi 3 verse 2. God it's like what? A refiner's fire. He refines his people through the furnace of affliction. So I, Isaiah experienced the cleansing fire of divine holiness. And then he was told, verse 7, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Immediately, the prophet felt the renewing grace of God. The renewing grace of God. His guilt, his uncleanness, his undoneness, all fell defeated to the power of divine love. And that's reflected in his eagerness to serve God. When he was challenged on this matter, Immediately came the response from the prophet, verse 8, Here am I, send me. So God expects of those who are cleansed of spiritual defilement. And if you have been cleansed, he expects you to serve him and serve him eagerly with heart, soul, mind, and will. 
Oh, perhaps not in foreign fields. Perhaps a harder missionary field than that. In your own doorstep. Your own doorstep. So here's God's answer to all that are burdened with a sense of sin and guilt. The vision, the seraphim, the altar, the coals of fire, they all depict in their own way aspects of gospel salvation perfected on the cross of Calvary. And what Jesus achieved on that cross, I have to say, is infinitely more sufficient than anything in this vision. These things are only symbolic of what Jesus achieved at Calvary. And you can be assured, if you come to Calvary this evening, if you call upon your name, if you surrender to the claims of Jesus, if you believe in him as your Savior, I can guarantee you, my friend, that all your sin and all your condemnation and all your, con- con- your, your, your defilement will be consumed by the love of a Savior. By the love of a Savior. Just one other thing before I close. Notice the assurance to Isaiah. Immediately after his cleansing was announced, look at what he said. Verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord. This is what happens. When the Lord cleanses us, this is what happens when the Lord transforms us. We hear his voice. Our ears are opened to the voice. God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us by his spirit. He speaks to us in providence. He speaks to us in grace. I heard the voice of the Lord. Oh, my friends, may all of you present here this evening hear that voice. May you know what it is to have your sin and your defilement consumed by the burning love of Jesus Christ for your heart and for your soul, and for your life. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank thee for this wonderful portion of thy word, and for the numerous ways in which the work of Calvary was uh, typified and symbolized and depicted in the Old Testament. And yet those who are discerning could see very clearly what the Lord was doing. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Open our eyes, gracious God, that we may see your blessed and beloved Savior high and lifted up at the close of this Sabbath day. All we ask is for thy glory's sake. Amen.